0: it's june 3rd 2018 and this is episode 368 of let's talk bitcoin on today's episode of let's talk bitcoin i'm here with stephanie murphy hello and jonathan mohan so jonathan you're based out of new york and you are our connected
1: person in the mix
0: blockchain week just happens did you go
1: Yeah, it was hard not to. It was about a week and a half long and there were about 10 or 15 competing events at all times. Consensus alone had, I think, 9,000 or close to 9,000 people paying like one to 2k a pop to go to that conference and then just all these other events around it. I was told by a number of people who are also in the fashion industry that Blockchain Week was crazier than Fashion Week in New York.
0: (laughs) Wow. You can see why. It seems like every year as the industry has continued to grow, we've seen these, especially New York events, but kind of everywhere, really explode. seems like this was a continuation of trend from last year, right, when we saw the EOS launch and things like that
1: with the parallel events? This was on, like, at least one order of magnitude larger, maybe, like, 20 times larger. What happened was the EDC, which is the Economic Development Corporation. It's a government-backed corporation (laughs) owned by the mayor. And they're in charge of economic development, or they enable or focused on economic development in New York. And they sort of speak with the authority and gravitas of the New York City. They started working with the community here in New York to actually make this a week like a thing in New York. So they, they went around to a number of people and with the support of the city itself, said, "Let's make this entire week, or this week and a half, like an entire thing around the city." So there were I think like 5 or 6 sort of like staple conferences and then like an additional 5 or 6 or 10 private events and this and that and then like just an insane number of parties around that. I think there were genuinely cuz Consensus alone had 9,000, I think that there were maybe 12 or 13,000 people that week there just for blockchain related events. That was going from everything at all times. It was pretty madness. All I do is talk, which is is hard to realize when we're all talking. But when you put the the four of us in a room, you get to see who really likes to talk. And my voice was almost virtually gone by the Friday. Like my voice was actually almost gone, which for me is really hard to do. That was because it was just like nine straight days of unending networking.
0: If it's possible to encapsulate it, what would you say is the theme this year that you saw? Or kind of what was one of the more prominent (laughs) themes?
1: at least in a professional context, maybe not towards the masses, that blockchain as an industry is just burgeoning on the early majority of being mainstream. What was different between last year and this year during the week that Consensus did their events was that last year we were a cohesive community, like the, the, the business industry. And this year it was literally more than 10,000 people And because of that, there were different niches and groups, and people were clustering and breaking apart and saying, this is the this conference, this is the that conference, this is the this event, this is the that event. So I think we're finally at the point where the interest and the number of people in this community is large enough that you're going to see just fracturing of community interests, self-selecting out like any industry does, you know? You don't say, I'm in internet, and then someone says, well, I'm in the music industry, and someone else says, well, I'm in the video game industry, and they share the same conference. And I think that what we saw with all of these breakout events was the manifestation of that finally happening. What is it? Is it the Dunbar number, where it's like humans can maintain a cohesive collective at about 150 people, and then they break apart after that? Yeah,
2: you have a limited number of people who you can be close with. And intimate relationships, it's even less than that. It's like 10 to 12, maybe.
1: I just think that as a community, as like a, a, even just the professional, the subgroup, the subsection of just professionals before it was, I think two or 3000, this event was like nine to 10,000. Once you get to that, you really have people just breaking apart into different groups and different interests. And after this week, I've spoken to a number of people who said, and for next year, I'm going to be doing my own breakout conference. I'm going to be doing this conference. I'm going to be doing that. I have people who are like, yeah, but that was zero philosophy. I want to do a philosophy conference. I think what's, what's happening is what Coindesk kicked off here in New York is slowly turning into the South by Southwest of cryptocurrency, because the number of breakout events and that feeling of it was the entire city had something going on that if the number of people who said they're going to do other events and other conferences continues as well, it really will get like a South by vibe. And I think that's just for the better. And it just shows how mature this industry is finally becoming and, and how mainstream it's turning into. For a
0: long time when we were talking about conferences and we were talking about these types of community organized events and things like that, even the larger ones, they used to be focused kind of on one type of thing, right? They used to be focused on Bitcoin or they used to be focused on Ethereum or they used to be focused on ICOs or things like that. And kind of as time has gone on, what would you say was the trend this time? It seems like it's definitely not Bitcoin. Last year, we kind of ran headlong into all of this ICO excitement. Is that still like the primary component that driving this and talks and stuff like this? Or are we back to protocol at all?
1: I'm a slap on the wrist conference goer. I very rarely go to the talks. I like to talk to the people while I'm there. The venue for Consensus was somewhat labyrinthian, so it was hard to really network with people there. For that reason, I actually didn't get an overall vibe of the conference. But like always, everything in this space is sort of turned into an ICO city. So it was a lot of like here's my project. This is what my token's gonna do. All, all that sort of stuff. I don't know what the overall vibe was. If I could put a tune on it, it was just it was too multifaceted. But I think to, it was an everything at all. It's you know when people say you go to CES and it's just so massive, it's literally not possible to see all of CES. And then if you ask someone like what's the vibe of CES, you'd go like I have no idea. I couldn't even look at like twenty percent of it. That's sort of the feeling that I got. There, there were entire conferences that were brilliant and amazing, and I would fly out to them if they were in other places of the country, but because they were happening concurrent to other conferences, I couldn't even bother going to tell you what the vibe there was. Sounds like it's a pretty exciting time then for Blockchain Week New York.
0: (laughs) And just as far as the overall rush of content, you know, I mean, it seems like it used to be that people would present new ideas at Consensus because that was where Ethereum originally kind of rolled out some of its stuff. Ethereum didn't roll out a Consensus. What did it, what did Ethereum do with consensus? I
2: think I got confused about this too Adam cuz there was an Ethereum conference called Consensus. Oh. But then there's also a different conference that's not about Ethereum that's called Consensus.
1: Yes. And then there's the dev shop called Consensus, which is owned by an Ethereum early founder. Not only is that confusing, but Consensus Systems the dev shop has a conference 3 days before the Consensus conference. So you have Consensus's conference and then the Consensus conference. It's very simple to get right. So Consensus Systems, the Ethereum dev shop, is Consensus spelt like the word syphilis. And Consensus, which is owned by Coindesk, is the real conference. No, but, you know, why give them the good graces of saying that? I just like to say it's spelt like syphilis. I mean, when
2: when else would you have that opportunity to say... When I
1: think of comparables to Consensus, syphilis is actually the first thing that comes to mind. Both in what it does to people and how it treats society.
2: It makes you go crazy if you don't, like, nip it in the butt. (laughs)
1: And then consensus, which is the Coindesk-operated conference. Name confusion in this space is rampant. One of my favorite examples, even in the early day, was BitPay and BitPagos, which is BitPay in Spanish.
2: (laughs) 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 Well, what about just Bitcoin? I mean, Bitcoin refers to the network the cryptocurrency
1: the payment protocol like it's so confusing yeah that's what happens when you let engineers name things (laughs) yeah
2: and now there's multiple things that call themselves bitcoin too so
1: blockchain.info all of a sudden pretends that they own the word blockchain right (laughs) so if you you talk to people in this industry and they're like oh wait you're in blockchain i didn't know you worked for this company and you're like what company oh you mean blockchain.info and they're like they're called blockchain now I'm like, no, you don't get to co-op the name of an entire industry. It's a utility name. Like, that's not a thing. What are you doing?
0: It's not as used a term, but Coinbase, if you recall, is actually also a technical term within the Bitcoin world in terms of where Bitcoins come from as an origination point. There have been a number of projects that have used that as well. So again, just like these names, like nobody really knows what to call anything. So some of the better names are the more obscure technical names.
1: My favorite technical word that became a company name is EOS's company is called Block One. And I actually really love that from a philosophical standpoint, because what makes a triple entry accounting distributed system have consensus is at the, blo- the point of the first block. So Genesis, there was no consensus. And then block one is when the distributed system had consensus. It, you know, It's like an industry term, but of all the companies that have names, I actually really like the notion of block one as a name.
0: Back on the conference topic, just for one more question. Anything weird or surprising that jumped out at you that we might find interesting?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I went to a conference once when a seven-foot clown was serenading Ron Paul, so I don't really know what weird is in this industry. Cryptocurrency people are really weird, and cryptocurrency people with money is really weird. I can say that Fluffy Pony from Monero has sort of become this whole like cult status around him. And everywhere he goes, the party follows. And I was at an event where just for the hell of it, he was handing out mini drones to people. And he made a Monero cake that had the bread wallet colors in it and, and call it bread cake. Just silly, dumb things like that. I don't know. It was kind of crazy. It was unending. And, oh, excuse me. Right. How could I it go without saying? Diorio had a boat party that was a thousand person boat and he gave away two Aston Martins on it. <laughs>
0: Anthony Diorio. Yeah,
1: and he, I mean, obviously he did it because now I'm giving him free marketing for having done it. People were talking, oh, dude, this is crazy. It's like there's a thousand people on the boat. That means it's a one in 500 chance that you're going to win an Aston Martin. You got it. That's the hot ticket. You got it. And I have a rule about boats which is that once you get on the boat, you can't get off the boat, right? <laughs> that's a commitment.
2: That's a captive audience.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's like my, one of my good friends in college. She was very excited that she was going to go skydiving. All she talked about for months before she went skydiving was skydiving. And then eventually just like stop her to be so exuberant. I was like, Vicky, you know what you're doing, right? And she was like, what? I'm like, you're paying to have a 30 year old guy spoon you for three hours. (laughs) She was like, oh, and I was like, yeah, once you strapped on, you can't just be like, you know what, actually, I'm not feeling this. I want to strap off right now. That's sort of how I feel about getting on a boat party. But no, so he gave away two Aston Martins and interestingly enough, subsidiary contractors and employees of Anthony were not exempted. So I'd be one of the people who won actually worked for him. Just as an aside,
0: given where we are right now, and given how much money some people in the community already have, (laughs) if we actually get to that point in time where there's some sort of meaningful level of adoption for this sort of technology, these people are going to have so much money, it's not even funny. I'm trying to wrap my head around how far we've come in like literally the last 18 months in that perspective. And we went from people having money to do projects to now having people who have money to give away two aston martins on a boat with a thousand people
1: stephanie i remember when adam used to be bitcoin milton friedman and now he's turning into bitcoin bernie sanders <laughs> the one percent control 98 percent of the economy
0: uh, I don't, again like I'm, I'm not explicitly saying that there's a problem here i'm just saying that like the rate of exponential progression that we are seeing here like, if we don't get a two-year bear market, oh, my God, it's going to be crazy. Like, change
1: the world crazy. And for the point of just sobriety, because Bitcoin did this back in 2015, which is they had the suicide hotline number up on the Bitcoin talk, I mean, the Bitcoin Reddit, which is that, you know, in 2000, when when the tech companies all boomed, people had all these gains, and then everything went to crap, and then all their debts came due, and they couldn't declare bankruptcy, and, you know, it got really bad. so. Exuberance is great, but it has to be tempered with the knowledge that if things go bad, you're prepared for those contingencies. There are very few people, I think, that are doing that.
2: Adam, you don't have to worry about a thing, even if you are Bitcoin Bernie Sanders, because, you know, there's going to be a redistribution, Yeah, you it know, tends to...
0: All right, we, we, we got to nip this in the bud right now. Not doing the Bitcoin Bernie
1: Sanders thing. <laughs> Speaking of redistributions of wealth, there was a rather large redistribution last night. Bitcoin gold was hit by a double spend attack and an exchange lost $18 million of equivalent USD or Federal Reserve notes in monetary value. So the way that they did it was a minor 51% attacked Bitcoin gold while simultaneously doing a, uh, what do you call it? Double spend. Double spend. Double spend attack. Yeah. yeah. I think they might've done some replay thing, but I I need to learn more about this. $18 $18 million was lost. Yeah, the
0: number of tokens actually uh, has gone through the system is 388,201 Bitcoin gold. So if it was Bitcoin, it'd be a lot more money too. What, what is a Bitcoin gold worth these days anyways? I haven't even ever looked at this one.
1: Before the hacker after.
2: Well, that's the thing because that's the argument. People say that with 51% attacks, there's a disincentive to do them because by doing a 51% attack, you undermine the market value of the coin. And so even if you get it, it's not worth it. If your 51% attack is successful, the coin is not going to be worth anything. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't, the price couldn't recover in the future if you hold on to it long enough.
1: On May 20th, it was worth about $54. And right now it's about $48, $46.
0: But if you look at the longer term trend here, it's been going down for a while. Looks like it's been going down since basically the end of April.
2: Yeah, like I remember when Bitcoin was at a peak in January, Bitcoin gold was around $300, something like that.
1: It's, it's a misconflation of how people understand price, because total supply in reference to these Bitcoin forks is in reference to the total outstanding Bitcoin, but that doesn't represent the liquidity preferences of the people who have it or have decided to look at it. So the thing about understanding the market cap of something is understanding uh, liquidation preferences which is when you can sell or when you have to hold. The market information on Bitcoin's price is relevant towards a particular price point's demand because they've had nine years to sell it. It's It's been liquid for nine years. The thing about Bitcoin Gold and other forks of Bitcoin is that it takes a while for the people who have the asset to technically or in terms of time get to the ability to sign on, log in, have the liquidity in their Bitcoin Gold and then be able to sell it. So when a fork immediately happens, the price is going to be the most illiquid representation of the hold-side demand. So it's always going to crash relative to that.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And also, like, yeah, there's so many stores of Bitcoin that are locked because of loss of keys or people being deceased and without passing them on, and so on and so forth. And there's been estimates about that, but we don't really know how much Bitcoin is actually locked up or is just kind of people have the keys or the ability to spend it, but they're just holding on to it. But it's a significant proportion. And when coins are distributed based on the distribution of Bitcoin, a certain percentage of those coins are also going to be locked up.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's not even counting that.
0: Right. I mean, I don't know if we want to answer this question, but personally, I've never touched Bitcoin gold, never recovered any, you know, Bitcoin gold that I might have.
2: There's not really good tools for it, you know,
0: Exactly. It seems like the cost of doing it outweighs the value that you could get. It's not, not the cost of doing it, the potential cost of doing it. If something goes wrong and you wind up compromising your other holdings, then it seems like that makes it not worth it.
1: For those curious, the process is rather annoying, but the best practice is to look in order of price the different derivations of Bitcoin that can exist and then zero balance an address. So if you have an address that has five Bitcoin in it, uh, make sure that you put that into a Bitcoin wallet and that has zero Bitcoin in it. Then take that wallet, put it into a Bitcoin cash wallet, zero out that balance, and then take that wallet and put that into a Bitcoin gold wallet and then zero balance that out. And what happens is you're de-risking ability of a nefarious actor to say, hey, I made this nonsensical fork of Bitcoin just so that you use my client, import your keys, and then I can steal the other derivations of Bitcoin associated with this private key. It's a manual process, and that's sort of what makes it so over-onerous and annoying.
0: I was just talking on Twitter a couple of days ago with Brian Micon. I don't know if you guys remember Brian Micon, but he's an old Bitcoiner, started the seals with clubs, one of the original kind of ways to play poker with Bitcoin. He built a tool that I cannot find a link to, That was basically that, basically like you move your Bitcoin out of your address, you send him the specific private key for the thing that doesn't have this, and then he recovers all of the different tokens that are associated with that and sends it back to you. And again, it's like one of those trust-oriented things, but it's a way that potentially is simpler if you are willing to trust in in that sort of service.
1: The unexpressed vehement antagonism towards a lot of these Bitcoin forks is that a lot of the Bitcoiners that have been around for a while understand all of the attack vectors and all the way that these things can go wrong. And a lot of the brilliance of Bitcoin is just from the dumb luck that it was first. There are so many attacks that could have happened or should have happened or may have happened to Bitcoin that just didn't because it was first, the market wasn't mature, people weren't looking at it, people weren't evaluating it. And if you were to take the exact same fact pattern of Bitcoin and start it today, You'd have to make some substantive and material changes to have it not be entirely destroyed. And when you look at Bitcoin Gold, the problem with maintaining the same hashing algo as Bitcoin is you have the greatest crucible overhanging you, which is just some guy with a few percentage of Bitcoin just decides to wreck your day. And this is what they decided to do to this exchange. It's rather trivial. You just wait for the next ASIC to come out on Bitcoin, buy some outdated Bitcoin miners that someone wants to sell, spool them online, and then attack a Bitcoin fork that didn't change their hashing algorithm. The reason why Bitcoin can't get attacked by some, I don't know how many blocks deep this was, but it had to be rather high, is because Bitcoin is Bitcoin. and It has the largest hash rate.
0: Well, so looking at the numbers for this, uh, Bitcoin fork, it's weird looking at numbers for things like market cap, because as you mentioned, there's the total supply in theory, and then here's the actual supply that people have bothered to recover and actually put into some place where it can be accessible.
1: It would be interesting if there was a way to have wallets choose to ping, and you could just be like, oh, that's active, like that's, you know, but, I mean, it's never going to happen.
0: Well, I mean, again, it it might happen, but we're a ways away from it, it seems like. But yeah, I mean, Bitcoin Gold, you know, today, after this happened, currently has a, you know, market cap, again, using that flawed calculation of three quarters of a billion dollars. And it's ranked 27 out of uh, all the cryptocurrencies out there.
1: But Bitcoin's gold valuation is about as real as Ripple's evaluation. <laughs> uh, well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that there's one number here that is
0: real, which is 15 about $15.5 million worth of volume in the last 24 hours, which is a somewhat meaningful number for the space.
2: And is that the thief, like selling off the Bitcoin or getting rid of it or...
0: I mean, you would expect that unless the market was pretty thick, selling off that many Bitcoin gold into this sort of market would have more of an effect on the price than it did. It really didn't do too much at all. So that's, again, makes me think that you know, there just aren't that many people who are even paying attention to this sort of thing.
1: Right. And, and they could be just doing it slowly over time, or they could be trying to OTC it. I mean, there, there are a number of ways that you could do this. I mean, most... Common... Right, the stealing and the cashing out are two different distinct steps, potentially. The surface area of attacks for 51% attacks should be looked at through the lens of credit card theft, which is uh, points on the dollar. So when I steal a credit card, I have access to a credit line. The way that you fence that is you go to somebody and he goes, all right, I'll give you 10 cents to the dollar. I'll give you 5 cents to the dollar. I'll give you 20 cents to the dollar. So you're always fencing at a discount because you're just the thief. You're not the one trying to monetize it. Those are two separate problems. So if someone were stealing this, they might just be looking at this like a stolen credit card, like they stole a database of credit cards and they're selling it at 10 cents on the dollar. So, they stole $18 million worth of Bitcoin gold. And now, the different problem of knowing how to turn that into USD is a different set of skills. And they might be selling it OTT for 30 cents on the dollar equivalent. And then someone else would say, sure, I'll take that risk. And now they just pocketed like three or four million dollars, which is still pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that's this is how the whole ceiling thing works, right? <laughs> right.
0: I mean, like, that's it, right? It's like, and I think that that's where the weakness, at least in projects like Bitcoin gold, where it seems like, you know, a much smaller proportion of even the people who are interested in Bitcoin are interested in Bitcoin gold. So in that circumstance, again, like who, who really cares if you wind up doing a double spend attack like this, because it doesn't have a substantial impact on the price, because not enough significant holders actually are paying attention and care to the point of actually of it being a big deal. I think that's that's a big problem, right? Is Everyone cares about Bitcoin. Everyone cares about Ethereum. And so if these things happen, then they actually have bad repercussions. But who cares about Bitcoin gold?
1: The scarier metric to me would be if you look at the last one year or the last six months of movement of addresses in Bitcoin and then compare that to Bitcoin Gold and then use that ratio to look at market cap to say, okay, this is how much active Bitcoin there is. Let's just use that as an assumption on Bitcoin Gold. You might find out that of the people who are actually in the Bitcoin Gold community trading it, That this $18 million theft might just be 10% or 20% or 30% of the actual active market cap of Bitcoin gold. In which case, we're getting into Ethereum DAO territory, where immutability and integrity of the blocks doesn't matter because you lost enough money that it's too big to fail. And we might actually see Bitcoin gold have another 51% of TAC, which is a block invalidation ex post facto to give themselves their money back.
2: That's interesting to say that's another 51% attack, because I agree with you that that's exactly what it is. I haven't heard talk of that yet.
1: I mean, it took Ethereum six weeks, so I would give Bitcoin gold some time.
2: Okay, we'll wait to see what happens.
1: Block depth, what's that? We can invalidate a single transaction six weeks after the fact.
2: There's so
0: many projects out there, and you know, Bitcoin forks, <laughs> for the most part, become just like everything else to me, which is that I do not pay any attention at all. I read a, an article the other day saying that there are something like 40 or 50 different Bitcoin forks that have come out, you know, over the course of its life. I, I think it'd be really interesting if we get some time to research it, to figure out, but if there are any other forks of Bitcoin out there that actually are worth knowing about or worth <laughs> understanding, because it seems like we kind of all, if you own Bitcoin, are getting vested into these different projects. And most of them are garbage, but are they all garbage? I have no idea. We haven't, I mean, like, it seems like it's a topic unto itself.
1: What you're doing is re-describing how most people who aren't philosophically inclined got involved with Bitcoin was, hey, there's this really gross, scammy thing, but it's going up and down and it's really weird and complicated and you can't really understand it. But why don't you just put like 1% of your portfolio into it? And then a year goes by and it's now 10% of their portfolio and they're like, crap. Now I actually have to figure out what this thing is because I own just so much of it.
0: That's not exactly my problem, but I am curious to know if there's anything else of value, not necessarily of monetary value, but of like of anybody who's actually trying to do something different. Like for all the problems with Bitcoin Cash, at least it has a very firm perspective on what it's doing and why it's doing it. Whereas with Bitcoin Gold, I don't know anything about that at all.
1: <laughs> right. I-, I keep saying my- the most interesting Bitcoin fork that I want to see happen is the Mimblewimble fork. Indeed, that
0: will be an interesting one. But they're uh, when we talk to them about that, they're launching it as its kind of own thing first, so I think we're a ways off from having that actually fork into Bitcoin proper.
1: Grin might do their own protocol, but how hard is it to just have someone indiscriminately take the Grin code and do a Bitcoin fork?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like these Bitcoin forks like really reached their saturation points super early. Like, okay, what like there were no forks for a long time, right? There were no none of these coin drops well, we used to call them altcoins.
1: So I, I like to think of them as Genesis chains, which is chains that honor the initial state of Satoshi's Genesis block onward. So we, we hadn't had a Genesis chain until last August, is what you were saying, Stephanie?
2: Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was saying. And then it sort of created this like fork apocalypse. <laughs> but I don't know, after the first few, after basically Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold, Nobody cared about any of the other ones. (laughs) And it was like, once the seal was broken, yeah, there were a lot of people who tried to kind of jump on the bandwagon, I guess, or maybe some had been wanting to do it for a long time. But yeah, like it was like after two, nobody cared. In contrast, before that, we had Ethereum with like all these different ICOs and coins popping up. And I think it took a little bit longer for the saturation point to be reached where people stopped caring about like new ICOs and just saying, oh, yeah, they're all a scam. I don't need to pay attention to that, you know, talking about the Dunbar number too, you get saturated with information, not just with connections with people, but you get saturated with information and how much you can read about and how much you pretty soon. It's like, why should I care? You know, you have to convince me why I should actually care about this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, with an ICO, you've got skin in the game, right? Like you've put money down in all likelihood and that therefore makes it so that you have a much greater vested interest. Whereas with these forks, Basically, it's a way that if your project succeeds in becoming interesting enough, then you have a large audience that's already vested and already essentially pre-qualified themselves by having Bitcoin or whatever the, the token is that you're forking. So I think they accomplish different purposes. And again, I think that we see with many of these projects that a problem is legitimacy or funding, right? They either fork the protocol like Bitcoin Cash did, and I think a few others have as well. And they don't give themselves a founder or developer allocation, or you do what other projects are doing, many other projects are doing, and, and you attempt to kind of rejigger the math so that, yes, you're honoring the existing balances that everybody has, but you're also giving yourself or your team enough of kind of a development funds carve out that you don't actually have to do an ICO. So far, I haven't really seen any of those projects work, because when you do that, people are like, oh, it's a scam. They're just in it for the money right now. Which, you know, seems to be true. (laughs) So maybe we'll see something kind of emerge from that. But yeah, so far, it's been pretty slim pickings for anything actually interesting.
1: I've been really disenchanted by a lot of the scam callers in the industry that I've known for a number of years because I was doing stuff with Ethereum and they're like, look, John, you're a good guy. But this whole Ethereum thing, it's just a scam. And you go, why? Oh, well, they're doing the sale thing. It's like, that just sounds like a scam. And I just know so many people who said, look, I thought I respect you, but this is so scammy, this, this, and that. And then all these people who go, well, ICOs are categorically a scam. Token sales are categorically a scam. Doing anything with the Genesis block is categorically a scam. And just one by one, with the exception of maybe five people, all of those guys who pretended that they had some framework of philosophical integrity said, oh, wait, I can make $20 million? (laughs) Sure. Let's do an ICO, baby. Woo! Like, people who, like, I I thought I respected them because, hey, they disagreed with me. Hey, they had an entire different philosophical viewpoint, and I could respect that. The moment they could make money, all of their philosophical leanings, their statements, their integrities, their lambasting from three or four years ago means nothing in the pursuit of money. So when when it comes to scam callers saying, I think this is a scam. 99% of the time, I've learned to just hear, I've yet to figure out a way that this makes me money, but I see it makes you money, so I'm going to be against it because it doesn't make me money. Because almost no one in blockchain has integrity, and that's sort of, anyway. (laughs) I can
0: appreciate that, Pet Peeve. I've spent a lot of time and money going down the path of doing things the right way, the honorable way, and all of that stuff. And I can tell you that the reason why people don't do it this way is because the rewards for doing it this way are very poor by comparison. And I was just talking with a venture capital company who I have a lot of respect for a couple of days ago. And they were like, why don't you just do an ICO and take the risk, you know, with all of that stuff? And it's like, well, because that's not the point of raising money, right? The point of raising money is you get money in and you trade that for future legal risk. The point is you get money in and then you can work on the project and become profitable, which isn't really a thing that most of the projects out there right now are doing. So I'd say that that's it, is that people who, you know, there definitely are a lot of people out there who I agree just have, you know, cried wolf on this thing since the word go. They're not necessarily wrong. It's just that reality isn't reflecting that particular perspective right now.
1: I can substantiate my point in a different way, which is in January of 2014, there was a conspiracy theory that Goldman Sachs was investing in Ethereum. And our Bitcoin went nuts, and people were giving the Ethereum projects so much shit, and everyone was against it. And it was like, the bankers, this, this, and that, this is evil, this is horrible. Goldman Sachs literally invested in Coinbase, and it was the greatest thing on our Bitcoin. They were so happy. It was a sign of maturity, and it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And that, that's when I realized that there are people who, who axiomatically derive their philosophy, And then there's 99% of the human race, which is just, does this statement make me money or lose me money? And does that statement make me money or lose me money? And look, blockchain's money and going mainstream means that the people who actually care about life and philosophy and the actual why of the universe is going to be entirely drowned out in blockchain like in every other sector of the world. And I say that Bitcoin's going uh, blockchain and Bitcoin specifically is going early majority what I mean is that all of those people with integrity and philosophical desires to change the world and actually mean it are entirely at this point washed out to the point where it's even not even possible to accidentally bump into them.
0: Today's show is sponsored by EZDNS.com. EZDNS first started sponsoring the Let's Talk Bitcoin show back in 2013, and they fall into the early libertarian adopters camp. In today's world, it doesn't really matter if you're running a blockchain startup or just have an opinion. You want a company who thinks your rights matter at an ideological level. And for my websites, that's EasyDNS. Oh, and for those of you already living in the future, you can pay your bill with Bitcoin or Ethereum. So when you're thinking domains, mail servers, or DNS provisioning, think EasyDNS.com. Now, back to the show.
3: the cash crisis in Venezuela. It's been an hour since I'm doing this line. It hasn't moved an inch. It's 10 a.m. and I'm up the Banco de Venezuela, a government owned bank. There are two lines that start at the glass door entrance, one that extends to the left and the other to the right. I mean the one to the left, the one of the young ones, as people refer to it. I'd say there are about 40 persons in front of me and 10 more behind. The short one, the one that goes to the right, is the priority line, with the elders, the pregnant women, and people with disabilities. I'd say there are about 30 persons in there. I agreed to meet my friend Anna here. We wanted to go for a coffee, but before she needed to pass by the bank first. I got here before her, so I decided to start doing the line while she arrived. She doesn't have a cell phone, I can't tell her to hurry, so I just have to trust she'll show up eventually. She should have been here an hour ago, that's the system we're using right now. Like me, she uses the collapsed public transport, so she's probably just talking a line for a bus. So, what's the line of the bank for? Cash, of course. Today, the limit is 100,000 bolivars, or less than 10 cents of a US dollar. We Venezuelans have an expression. Éramos muchos y parió la abuela. We were too many, and the grandma gave birth. That's how the cash crisis feels like in here. You have the food crisis, the hospitalary crisis, the transport, the crime, all the services collapsing at the same time, the inflation, and on top of all of that, the cash crisis. That's the grandma bringing another baby to the world. You'd think that a government that creates money to cover public expenses and that has managed to get the highest inflation in the world because of that, wouldn't have a cash crisis. If anything, we should be swimming in worthless banknotes. What happens is that most of that monetary expansion is created digitally, and just a small portion of it makes it as actual physical banknotes. The government creates money like there's no tomorrow, but the printing presses simply can't keep up. Let's look at some data from the Venezuelan Central Bank. In early 2016, when grandma was pregnant but hasn't given birth yet, the percentage of cash against of the money in circulation was of 12.8%. Back then, the government flooded the country with the 100 bolivars banknotes, the highest at the time, and many businesses started buying money counting machines, others just weighed the money. People started using it for crafts too. That bill became so useless that a video of some Colombians forming a mountain of those appeared online and became viral. In April of this year, the latest data available, that proportion between cash and the monetary mass, or M2, reached the all-time low of 2.7%. They aren't creating a lot of bank notes these days. As Bloomberg puts it, In a report in 2016, they are simply running out of money to print money. In 2017 they finally launched the long-awaited coin family with the higher denomination bills. The lowest one was the one of 500, while the highest one was the one of 20,000. It was all fine and dandy, but for some mysterious reason they emphasized in printing the lowest denomination banknotes. This year, of all the new banknotes put in circulation, 68% were of the 500 and the 1,000, the two lowest, and only 6% of the new banknotes were of the higher and actually useful 100,000 bill. It's baffling and it's infuriating. If all bills cost the same to produce, why not create the higher ones and at least avoid the scarcity of money and a lot of suffering? Nobody knows for sure, Some say it is on purpose, a way to keep the population busy. I'm going to take a wild guess and say that someone, somehow, is making money out of printing lower bills. After all, this is a cryptocracy. Money has gotten so scarce that now even a parallel market appeared. And in my city in particular, that parallel market is like no other. Turns out there are very wealthy individuals willing to pay top money for the banknotes. Driving the prices further rob- up. Right now, the cash is being sold with a premium of up to 300% for the higher bills. So, who are these wealthy individuals driving the prices up, you say? Illegal miners at the south of the country. Not Bitcoin miners, I mean the gold miners. The gold mines of my country are controlled by armed gangs that work in collaboration with the armed forces. transport the loot. And it's not even a secret, everyone knows that, there are plenty of journalistic reports out there. Hell, you can even go to google maps and see the miners for yourself. Just google Las Claritas, Venezuela, put the satellite view and zoom out until you see the huge section with no trees. Those are the mines. These miners need literal truckloads of cash for their operations, that's why they pay any price for it. Our local economy has transformed around that, now everyone seems to be trying to get a hold of cash, knowing how valuable it is for the miners. Businesses started offering discounts at up to 65% for purchases in cash, and some others simply stopped accepting other payment methods altogether. Cash dealers have appeared, some have made a living out of transporting this cash to the south. And of course, lines at the banks have gotten extra crazy. The people doing the line with me uh, were most likely trying to take advantage of these discounts the store offer. They just want to stretch a little bit their wages, but they are effectively helping these miners because they are part of the chain. At 12.35, Anna finally shows up, holding a brick of cash. She told me she knew a guy inside and picked up her cash right away. Turns out I didn't have to do the line. I just lost my morning and I endured three hours of scorching sun for nothing. At least this was a calm line. Earlier this year, a video appeared on Twitter of a line at Orinokia, our main mall. That's the audio you're hearing right now. The video shows a crowd cramped at the other side of the glass door. The second the door slide open, they start running in a stampede to the nearest bank. You can make out someone falling and almost getting run over by the crowd. That happens every day. It would be crazy for me to say that cryptocurrencies would solve all of Venezuela's problems. After all, éramos muchos y parió la abuela. But imagine if we had at least a currency controlled by an open and easily auditable software instead of politicians with unclear incentives. Venezuelans not only need protection from inflation, our whole banking system is broken, and we are in dire need for an alternative that stops rewarding the ones that waste more time in line, like me, and the well-connected, like Ana. This was Christian Garcia reporting from the south of Venezuela. Thanks for listening.
0: If you'd like to tip Christian Garcia or the Let's Talk Bitcoin show itself, head over to letstalkbitcoin.com and check out the show notes for episode 368. A huge shout out to the people who donated to the first Venezuelan segment two weeks ago. We started this project because hyperinflation means that the amount of good that can be done with 10 or 50 or $100 is so huge compared to anywhere else in the world. It feels really good to be able to give and make a meaningful difference without needing an equally-sized sacrifice in the rest of your life. You shouldn't feel pressured to donate just understand that if you do, what you give is much less than what Christian will receive. In the last few weeks, I've started several other small projects working with folks on the ground in Venezuela. If you're interested in helping out or in learning more, drop me an email at adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Thanks for listening to LTB 368. This episode was sponsored by EasyDNS.com and featured conversation by Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. The Cash Crisis segment was written and recorded by Christian Garcia. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and Adam B. Levine, featuring music from Jared Rubens, General Fuzz, and Gertie Beats. Want a tip Let's Talk Bitcoin or Christian Garcia directly? Head over to the show notes at letstalkbitcoin.com to connect the dots. See you next time.